0: said that, let's just jump right in. I want to begin by reading the passage that we're going to be focusing on today, and that's John chapter 14, verses 15 through 26, and these are the words of Jesus. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So during the last three weeks, um, we've been going through John chapter 14 and answering the question, "As Christians, how can we live with confidence in a broken world full of so many challenges? And, and what we've seen over the past three weeks is that Jesus's answer to that question in John 14 is that we can have confidence and hope confidence in love and confidence in prayer. And now I get to wrap this series up by talking to you about having confidence in the Holy Spirit. But before we jump into the specific verses I just read, I think it would be helpful, even though this will be the fourth time you've heard this, I think it would be really helpful just to remind you about the larger context around John chapter 14. So, Jesus, for the past three years, has been training His disciples to go out into the world and advance His kingdom. And in the disciples' minds, though they're mistaken, but in their minds, that literally means defeating the occupying Roman Empire and seeing Jesus set up as King. And at this point in the story, things are actually looking probably the best they've looked for that mission. Jesus, just days prior to this chapter, John 14, he has entered into Jerusalem welcomed as a conquering king. And so the disciples probably have their expectations very high until Jesus begins at this point to explicitly and repeatedly tell them, I'm leaving you. Which is awful timing, right? Things are looking great. And on top of that, not only are things looking great, the disciples know we are making a lot of powerful people very angry. And so, the disciples are freaked out. We know they're freaked out because Jesus begins this entire chapter with the words, don't let your hearts be troubled. He's saying that because their hearts are troubled. They're worried. And and He's also trying to instill confidence in them by teaching them about hope and love and prayer. And those three things are necessary and awesome, but I'm going to make maybe a a shocking statement. As great as And as essential as those three things are, they are not enough to give the disciples the confidence that they really need with Jesus leaving. It would be kind of like throwing me into the boxing ring with a professional boxer. Now I told the 9 a.m. this. I wore short sleeves on purpose so you could get the full effect up here, like... Not happening, right? You're not going to hurt my feelings. I hear laughter. I wrestle with my seven-year-old, and he takes me down. So listen, I have zero confidence that I could get in the ring with a professional boxer and have any chance. The only thing I'd be punching is a ticket to the emergency room. If Mike Tyson himself trained me, I would still have zero confidence. I'm just not built to be a fighter, not physically, not mentally, none of it. At the end of the day, the only way I could have any confidence in the ring would be if Mike Tyson hopped in the ring and fought with me and for me. And the disciples, you know that's exactly what they want. That's exactly what they need. The evil that they're going to face both in themselves and outside themselves is just way too strong for them alone. They need Jesus in the ring with them, fighting for them, or at least they need someone just as good and just as powerful. And John chapter 14 verses 15 through 26 is Jesus acknowledging and responding to that very real concern. Basically, He's saying in these verses, listen, I know you're worried that I'm leaving you, but I'm not going to throw you into the arena alone. I'm going to send someone else to fight for you. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And so, what I want to do with just the rest of my time is dig into this passage and answer three simple questions Number one, we're going to ask and answer, who is the Holy Spirit? Second, we're going to ask, what does the Holy Spirit do to inspire confidence? And then lastly, we'll wrap up with this question, how do we receive the confidence given by the Holy Spirit? So let's start with question number one, who? Who is the Holy Spirit? And there are literally dozens of ways we could approach that question. What I want to do, uh, before we really dive into any details, is just zoom out from this passage And look at the larger structure of verses 15 through 26. And you can really break it into two parts. Jesus begins the first part of his teaching in verses 15 through 17 by telling the disciples three things about the Spirit that he's going to send them. So I'll just give you an overview of that. Verses 15 through 17, three things about the Spirit he's sending them. The first thing he tells us is that this Spirit is a person. Over and over, he refers to the Spirit using the pronouns he and him, not it. The reason that's important is because I think there is a tendency sometimes as believers to think about or talk about the Spirit as though He's like the force in Star Wars or something, right? Like He's this impersonal force, when in reality the Bible and Jesus never talk about the Spirit like that. He is a person. That's the first thing. The second thing Jesus says about this person is that He is a person distinct from Jesus Himself. That's why Jesus refers to Him as another advocate, distinct from Jesus. And then the last thing we see here in verses 15 through 17 is that this person, this spirit, will be in some sense to the disciples familiar. Jesus says, he's been with you, you have him, you know him, but he's also going to be new. Verse 17 says, he will be in you. Like that hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen. So if I could summarize everything out of that first part of of, of this passage, Jesus is saying, I'm going to send you a person distinct from myself who will be simultaneously familiar and yet new. Then in verses 18 through 26, the second part of the teaching, without any hint that He's about to change the subject, Jesus starts talking about how He Himself is going to come to the disciples. He says things like, I will not leave them. I will come to you. You will see Me. So which one is it? That's the question you're probably asking if you're reading this passage on your own. Is Jesus going to send the Holy Spirit to them, or is He going to come back to Him Himself? And as Pastor Ryan likes to say, the answer is, yeah, hey, some of you have sat under this guy. That's good. What we're dealing with here is the mystery of what we as Christians call the Trinity. Um, and I'm sure most of you are familiar with that term, familiar with the concept. We're only going to scratch the surface of a concept that has filled debates and sermons and lecture halls for centuries. But the simple definition is that, is that as Christians, we believe in, in one God who eternally exists in three persons. So, while the Father and Jesus the Son and the Spirit are all distinct persons, they are also one unified God. And that's why in this passage, Jesus can move so seamlessly and interchangeably between talking about sending the Spirit and talking about coming back to the disciples Himself, because Jesus will indeed be coming back to His disciples through His Spirit. So, what He's saying is, I'm not abandoning you, I'm going to stay in the ring. I'm going to fight with you, which is awesome. But if we're honest and you just stop and think about it for a second, this kind of seems like a cop-out on Jesus' part, which is not what you're supposed to say as the preacher on the stage. Jesus cops out right now. It's kind of like if you invite somebody to a party and they say to you, I'm sorry I can't come, but I'll be with you in spirit. Anybody ever roll their eyes when somebody says that? What, like, what does that even mean? It means you don't want to come, but you feel bad about it, right? Now, we know Jesus isn't saying that here. We know He's saying more than that, but, but just ask yourself, don't you, feel, don't you feel a little cheated by what He says here? Just, I'm going to give you a little experiment, a little thought experiment. Do this to yourself, not out loud. Answer this question. If you could choose in this life right now, I don't mean like in the new heaven and the new earth, right now in this world we live in, If you could choose to have the Holy Spirit unseen inside you, or you could have Jesus physically in front of you, touch Him, hear Him, talk to Him, which one would you choose? Now, most naturally, we, and I'm talking about myself here, we would choose Jesus in front of me. That seems like a no-brainer, like Holy Spirit invisible or Jesus visible. I'll, I'll take the latter. Thank you. The problem with that is that Jesus Himself literally says the exact opposite, just two chapters from here. In John chapter 16 verse 7 listen to this but very truly I tell you it is for your good that I am going away just just linger on that for a minute he's talking to his disciples and saying to them that it is for your good that me the incarnate son of God is going to leave you and here's why unless I go away the advocate the spirit will not come to you but if I go I will send them to you. Jesus is saying that in this life right now, it is better to have His Spirit than to have Him physically with us. In other words, I'll borrow a phrase from another pastor. The Spirit of Jesus inside of us is better than having Jesus physically beside of us. That's what Jesus says. But I'm gonna be honest with you. I scratch my head and say, how can that be true? And the fact that we even ask ourselves how that can be true is really an indictment against us that we're probably not experiencing the work of the Holy Spirit the way Jesus intends. And so, that brings us to our second question. Now, we know who the Spirit is. The question is, what exactly does the Spirit do inside of us that will give us enough confidence to face the world without Jesus beside of us? And the answer to that question is literally an entire branch of theology. So, I'm going to give you a, a quick disclaimer. I cannot possibly cover Everything that the Spirit does for us in one 35 minute teaching. And I know you're thinking He just told us how long He's going to be, but this is the 11 a.m. service. There ain't nothing behind it. I just keep on going. No. What I want to attempt to do is unpack specifically what Jesus is saying in this passage about the work of the Spirit and how it connects directly to the main concern at hand, which is Jesus' departure. So Jesus says a lot in verses 18 through 26, but for the sake of simplicity, I think we can take everything He says in those verses and just lump them under one category, one word, and that word is relationship. The work of the Spirit in this passage is centered on relationship. And to explain why I chose that word, it's actually helpful for me to just pause and clarify something. In John 14, 15 through 26, Jesus is not speaking about the Holy Spirit entering into someone's life for the very first time. To bring them into a relationship with God as their father. The disciples to whom He's speaking are already in that kind of relationship with God. We know this because in verse 17, remember, He told them that you already know the Spirit and in some sense you already have Him. And then He goes further than that in verse 18, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. Now, the only people who can be orphaned are children. So the disciples at this point in their lives, they're already children of God and in some sense they've already had the Spirit working in their lives. What's about to change is that Jesus is leaving. And even though you've heard the saying that absence makes the heart grow fonder, the far more common truth is that absence makes the heart wander. So, put yourself in the disciples' shoes for just a minute, which really shouldn't be difficult. We're talking about Jesus leaving and not being physically present. That's every day of our life. So, put yourself in their shoes and just be honest with yourself for a moment. Do you ever feel like Jesus isn't really close by. Do you ever question and wonder, does he really still love me? I mean, you say to yourself, I know what Jesus said. I can read it in the scriptures. I can hear the sermons. But how do I really know that this time Jesus hasn't abandoned me? These are the questions the disciples are facing, that we're facing. And Jesus' answer to those questions is this He's going to send His Spirit in a new and fuller way, not just to be with us, but in verse 17, he says to be in us. And I want you to listen to how that spirit inside of us will affect our relationship with God. I'm just going to kind of go verse by verse here and break it down. Verse 20, Jesus says, on that day, talking about the day that he's going to send his spirit in this new way, on that day, you will realize or know that I am in my Father and you are in me, And I am in you. So when we begin to wonder and doubt if we really are in that relationship with the Father and Jesus, Jesus says the Spirit will cause you to know it. And then in verses 21 through 23, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and listen to this and show or reveal myself to them. Then Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and then listen to this part, and we will come to them and make our home with them. So when we feel like God is far away and nowhere to be found, the Spirit will show or reveal Jesus to us. He'll he'll pull back the veil, and there will be Jesus and the Father. And not only will they be close, Jesus says they will make their home within us through the Spirit. And then the last two verses of this passage, verses 25 and 26, all this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Whenever someone we love like this leaves, inevitably other forces come in and fill the gap. Forces like pain, sorrow, anxiety, successes, pleasures, you name it. And those forces come, and they try to distract us, and they try to woo us away and make us forget all that the lover of our souls has said and promised to us. But what Jesus is saying is that the Spirit will remind us. He won't let us forget. He won't let us abandon our vow of faithfulness, and He'll remind us that Jesus will never abandon His Now, if I took all that that I just said and summed it up, here's what I'd say, that as God's children, the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit is to deepen and confirm the reality of our relationship with God. The ongoing work of the Spirit is to deepen and confirm the reality of our relationship with God. And there's a beautiful picture of what this looks like a little later in the New Testament in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 16. And understand this about Romans 8. In, in John 14, right now that we're studying, Jesus is talking about something that's going to happen but hasn't happened yet. That's why He says, I will ask the Father, and He will send you the Spirit. But in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul is writing from the opposite perspective. It's already happened. So, He's going to explain to us what this experience of the Spirit is really like. And here's what He says. Listen to it in Romans eight fifteen through 16. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Now, that's the entrance into God's family that I said earlier that Jesus wasn't talking about. So, the Spirit does come. He does bring us into God's family. But then listen to the rest of this passage. And by Him, by the Spirit, we cry. He doesn't say we cried like it happened one time and never again, but it's ongoing, present tense. By the Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father." The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And I want to make sure you heard that word there, testifies, in verse 16. That's a a legal term. That's a court of law kind of language. And this is why back in John 14, 16, John 14, 26, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as our advocate. One thing that an advocate does, because we still use the word in this way, is he's like a defense attorney that testifies on our behalf. The question is, to whom is the Spirit testifying? And verse 16 tells us he's testifying with our own spirits. So, so in Paul's picture that he's painting here, we are simultaneously the ones on trial and the ones trying to convict ourselves. Anybody know how that's like? We are often our own greatest enemy. And and maybe the context behind that is maybe we failed again. Maybe we've been hurt and we feel abandoned. Maybe we're facing pain and sorrow and we just want to feel God's embrace. Whatever the situation is, the Spirit of God comes as our advocate, and He argues with us, and He convinces us one more time, and He never grows weary of it, that we are God's children. We are loved by our Father in heaven. We don't need to keep turning to cheap substitutes, and we are not alone. And He gives us this supernatural confidence. In the midst of just being broken to pieces, He gives us this supernatural confidence to cry out with childlike intimacy, Abba, Father. And that work of the Spirit is exactly what Jesus is describing in John chapter 14. He's deepening and confirming our relationship with God And this is also why, while we live in these broken bodies in this broken world, this is why the Spirit of Jesus inside of us is better than just having Jesus beside of us. Because in Romans 8, Paul tells us the real battle is internal. It's in our spirits. All the external things that bother us are real. I would never minimize them. The reason, though, that they bother us is because they affect us internally. They affect our spirit, our our will, our emotions, our mind. That's where we question God's love and goodness and commitment to us. That's where we need Jesus the most, and that's exactly why He left our side to come inside. You can think about it like this. As cool as it would be to have the pilot of the plane come, come and sit in the back with us, beside of us, where we really need Him is in the cockpit, unseen, behind the controls, guiding us safely home. So, now we know who the Spirit is, we know what He does to bring us confidence. The million-dollar question is now, how do we get the Spirit to do that work, right? How, How do we receive this relational confidence that the Holy Spirit advocates for? And the answer to this question is actually very clear, it's very simple, but it's challenging. Uh, Jesus says it right at the beginning of John 14 uh, in this passage, John 14, 15 through 16. He repeats it again in the middle. I'm just going to read the beginning, John 14, 15 through 16. Listen to the connection Jesus makes between the two halves of his statement here. He says, if you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help and be with you forever. That's it. If we want the ongoing work of the Spirit in our lives in increasing measure in order to deepen our relationship with God, grow us in confidence, then we must lovingly obey Jesus. Now, that's maybe not what you expected to hear. Maybe that's not what you wanted to hear. But when you think about it for just a minute, it makes complete sense. Listen, I have three kids, ages seven, three, and one. And all day long, um, except for when I'm at work, and even then sometimes because I get phone calls, um, but all day long I hear, hey, Dad, hey, Dad, hey, Dad. And I love it. I'm a father. I love it. But my kids need my help all the time with all kinds. Of, they need help being fed. They need help getting dressed, brushing their teeth, going to doctor's when. You name it, they need it. They need my help. But in the past seven years of being a father, I have learned at least one thing my kids never need my help with, and that's disobeying me, Right? We laugh because we know it's true. Even if you're not a parent, you've been a kid and you know it's true. And as God's children, we are exactly the same. Nobody needs help disobeying God. That is the default mode of our hearts. And I don't even have to prove it to you. We all know this is true about ourselves. To rebel against our Father, to be wooed away from our faithful spouse, to say and do things that feel so good in the moment, what we know are going to lead to sorrow and destruction, that is the default mode of our hearts. And in the New Testament letter of Galatians, The Apostle Paul calls that part of ourselves the flesh, and he goes on to say that the Holy Spirit makes war against the flesh. You see, obedience to God, obedience to Christ is the prerequisite for the Spirit to do His work inside of us because that is precisely where the war is that we cannot win on our own. Now, I could stop the teaching there. I've basically gone through all the verses I I was supposed to go through, but I think if I stopped there, it would leave a lot of you, if you're like me, kind of deflated. Because as much as we know that the Bible tells us to obey God, obey Jesus, the question I'm left with is, what about when I fail, right? I hear the obedience thing, but what about when I disobey? Disobey. You can read a passage like this and hear someone speaking on it and get the impression that this is just an impossible standard. I guess I just won't have the ongoing work of the Spirit in my life. And to speak to that concern, I just want to draw your attention back to a single word in verse 16. I glossed over it, but I want to come back to it. In John fourteen sixteen, Jesus did not say just that He was going to send an advocate. He said He promised to send us another advocate, and Jesus never wastes words. The reason He calls Him another advocate is because Jesus Himself is the first advocate, so the Spirit is going to be like Him and continue His work as advocate. So, if you want to know how the Spirit handles your failures, all you have to do is look at how Jesus handled failure, and we don't have to go real far to see that. We've been studying John 14 for the past four weeks. Right before this in John 13, at the very end of it, Jesus looks at Peter, one of his closest disciples, one of his closest friends. He looks at Peter and he tells him, you're going to deny me three times. Now, I imagine most of you in this room are familiar with that story. If you've been to church at Easter, we usually hear about it. But I think we hear it so much that we forget how big of a deal it was. Jesus himself had very plainly stated that if anyone denies him before men, then he will deny them before the Father. And yet, that is exactly what Peter does on the night of Jesus' trial and arrest. And right after his third and final denial, Scripture tells us that Peter looks over and he sees Jesus looking straight at him. And you know that the look on Jesus' face must have been one of unimaginable heartbreak and grief because the next thing we're told is that Peter begins to weep, he leaves, and we never see or hear from him again until after the resurrection. So, colossal failure… This was not a minor thing. And yet what I want you to hear is what Jesus told Peter before all of that happened. He knew it was going to happen, and he's speaking about it. But listen to this. This is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. It gets me every time I read it. In Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 32, Peter's name is also Simon. Jesus is speaking about this failure, and he says this, Simon, Simon. Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, notice he didn't say if you turn back. Jesus said, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Do you recognize what Jesus is doing here? He's advocating for Peter with the Father. He's standing up for Peter. He's defending Peter. He knows Peter is going to fail, but he's not going to let him fall away. And and that's why after Jesus rises from the dead, he goes and he finds Peter. He doesn't wait for Peter to come to him. Peter has actually gone back to fishing. Jesus had told Peter, you're not going to fish for fish anymore. You're going to be a fisher of men. And yet Peter has failed so much, he's gone back to fishing. And Jesus goes and he finds Peter. And three times, just like Peter denied him three times, three times Jesus looks at Peter and asks him, do you love me? And three times he tells Peter, feed my sheep. In other words, get off the boat and go, do what I called you to do, He restores Peter. And if that's how Jesus, the first advocate, handled failure, you can be sure that the Spirit of Jesus, the other advocate, will do exactly the same. Yes, the New Testament says very clearly that when we disobey, we grieve the Spirit, we quench the Spirit. It's a big deal. But as God's adopted and secure child, the Spirit of Jesus will not forsake you. He will fight for you. And the great paradox of the work of the Spirit is that, yes, even though He works in our lives, the more we obey, He is also the one that empowers us to obey. And just like Jesus did for Peter, the Spirit of Jesus doesn't wait for us to come looking for Him. He comes for us. He pierces our hearts when we failed. He challenges us. He brings us to repentance. And then after all of that, the Spirit of Jesus embraces us reminds us that we're loved, testifies that we're still God's children, and He dusts us off and He puts us back in the arena. Yes and amen. Yeah, that's awesome, isn't it? The Spirit of God. But we're not done yet. This movie has multiple endings, so just hang in there with me. We're at the end, I promise. But there's still a problem, and maybe you've caught on to it. We love to talk about forgiveness and restoration. I, I, I could hear that every Sunday. Sunday. But what about Peter's sin? Did Jesus just pretend like it didn't happen? Did He just sweep it under the proverbial rug? Is that what the Spirit does with our failures? Remember, Jesus had said that if anyone denies me before men, I will have to deny you before the Father. But we know that doesn't happen to Peter. Peter remains a child of his heavenly Father. He continues to have the Spirit working inside of him. He he stands up and preaches to a crowd full of people, full of the Spirit. How is that possible? after such a colossal failure. In John chapter 14, actually, we get a little clue as to how that's possible. This entire time, we've been looking at this passage, and Jesus is promising His disciples that He's going to send the Spirit in this new and amazing way. And yet, don't you wonder why He doesn't do it like right then? Like, if I were the disciples and Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm out of here, I'd be like, could you send the Spirit now? That'd be great. But He doesn't. And in John 16, which I read to you earlier, He tells us why. In John 16, 7, Jesus says, I can't send you the Spirit in this way unless I first go away. And when He says go away, what He's talking about is going away to the cross. Because it's there on the cross that Jesus becomes most fully our Advocate. It's it's there on the cross, hanging on the cross between us and the judge of all the earth where all of the wrath and punishment that we deserve, Jesus absorbs. And the reason that Peter is not denied by the Father is because Jesus, hanging on the cross, is denied by the Father in His place. And that's why we hear Jesus, hanging on the cross, cry out, my God. My God, why have you forsaken me? This is the price Jesus had to pay to not sweep our sins under the rug, but to cover them so that He could send His Holy Spirit to live in us forever. I'm going to go ahead and have the worship team come up, and I just want to end with a story just to drive all this home. There's a movie that I really enjoy called Cinderella Man. My wife and I actually just watched it again just so I can make sure I'm getting all the details right, and and it hit me the same. It just really pulls at the heartstrings. In this movie, Russell Crowe plays a real-life boxer from the 1930s named Jim Braddock. And by all accounts, not only was Jim a really good boxer, he was probably an even better father and husband, and his victories in the ring made it possible for him to provide a, a pretty nice lifestyle for his family. That is until the stock market crashed and the Great Depression happens. And then all of a sudden, Jim basically loses everything. He loses his money because it's all invested. He loses his house. And then on top of all that, his boxing career takes a dive. He's, he's getting older. He's getting injured. And what you find in the movie is eventually he's even decommissioned from boxing. They won't allow him to do it anymore. So this is a man who's lost everything but his family. And Jim comes home one day in the middle of this Great Depression to this shabby apartment. He's been at the docks looking for work, and they don't have any for him. So, he's already coming home deflated as a man, as a husband, as a father, and his wife tells him that their oldest son, Jay, maybe 10 or 12 years old, has stolen a salami from the local butcher. So, Jim takes his son, and he walks him back up the street to the butcher and he makes him return that salami and he makes him apologize. And this entire time, his son is just silent to the father. He's not saying a thing to his father until they get out of that butcher shop. And little Jay, maybe 10 or 12 years old, looks up at his bear of a father, this boxer of a man. And here's what he says to him He says, Marty Johnson had to go away to Delaware to live with his uncle. And Jim asks, Why? And Jay responds, his parents didn't have enough money for him to eat. And, and Russell Crowe acts this part so well. You can just see the look in his eyes as it dawns on him that his son stole because he's afraid that we're going to send him away. And so, Jim Braddock, he bends down to his son like this and he says, he says, just because things ain't easy don't mean it's Okay for us to take what's not ours. No matter what happens, we don't steal. And now for some of you, that is as far as your concept of God as your father goes. He is strong, he's authoritative, and he's moral. He tells me what's right and wrong, he corrects me when I'm wrong, but Jim Braddock doesn't stop there. He, 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 cr- he crouches all the way down, and, and he looks right in his son's eyes, and he says to him, he says, and I promise you, We will never send you away. And his son breaks, and he begins to weep. And this bear of a man, this strong man, he wraps his son in his arms. He embraces him, and he picks him up. And he carries him home. (sighs) Stupid movie. And if the movie ended there, you would be just like me. You You would have your heartstrings tugged at. You would be inspired. I'd have a nice little illustration I can give you on a Sunday morning, but that is an incomplete story. Because Jim just promised his son, in the middle of the Great Depression, he just promised his son, I will never abandon you. And what that means is, I will put food on the table, I will keep the electricity on. If you get sick, I will take you to the doctor, and all of that comes at a cost. And Jim knows that and the rest of the movie is Jim keeping his promise and here's what he does he does something he's never had to do before he humbles himself and he goes to the welfare line and he stands in line and everybody's watching that's Jim Braddock and he gets to the line and the lady behind the counter says I never thought I'd see you here Jim but he takes that money he swallows his pride because he's going to provide for his kids he's not going to abandon them but then he has one better he he gets on a ferry he crosses the river he goes into New York City and he goes to Madison Square Garden where he's boxed before, he's won championships before, and he goes into that back room. It's filled with smoke. All these wealthy guys in nice suits. They used to be Jim's friend when he was winning boxing matches, but now they can't even look at him. And he comes and he stands in the middle of that room and he hangs his head and he takes his hat off and he begins begging these men for money so that he doesn't have to send his kids away. He humiliates himself to keep his promise. But more important than all that is Jim begins to box again. He's too old to do it. He's injured, but he does it, and he begins to win, which means he begins to make money, which means he can keep his promise. And his manager is able to finally book him a fight against the reigning heavyweight champion, a guy named Max Bear. the same Max Bear who has already killed two opponents in the ring because he punched them so hard. But Jim agrees to this fight, and of course, the press goes wild with it. Why? Why? And, w- and, and one reporter in an interview asked him, Jim, what's different this time? And Jim says, I know what I'm fighting for. And the reporter says, well, what's that? And Jim says, milk. I'm fighting to put food on the table so I don't have to send my kids away so that my kids will never be orphaned. Jim was willing to risk his life so that his children are never going to be orphaned orphaned. And just like Jim Braddock, Jesus looked at his disciples, God's children, and he promised them, I will not abandon you. And that promise came with a price. The difference between Jim Braddock and Jesus Christ is that Jesus entered the ring knowing he would lose, knowing that the fight would take his life. But he also knew that that was the way to true victory, That was the way to pay for our sins. That was the way to resurrection, and that was the way to ascension to the Father, where He would walk through those gates, victory in hand, angels and saints going wild with cheers. And, and, you know, sometimes we think of Jesus as this very somber individual. No, 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 no. He would have had the biggest grin on His face with victory in hand as He stands before His Father, and just like He promised... He would say to his father, Father, send them our spirit on the basis of my victory. And that's exactly what he did. So that we would never, ever, ever have to be orphaned. Jesus kept his promise. He paid the highest price. The question we are left with is have we received the precious gift of his spirit? And if we have, have we valued that gift the way it deserves to be valued? Do we even realize what we have? Are we taking it advantage of Are we seeking the fullness of the Spirit's work in our life? Because that is the path to true and lasting confidence in this world. If you'd bow your heads and close your eyes, I just want to end by praying with you. Earlier, I made the comment that that this is really an indictment against me, against us, that we're just not experiencing the power of the Spirit the way Jesus intends. And I mean that. I know that's true about myself. I imagine there's some of you out there that could say that's me too. And I just want to pray that that would change, that we would realize what we have. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus, our first advocate. Thank you for sending him here to humiliate himself, to humble himself, to pay the price so that we could be adopted as your children. And thank you for not leaving us alone. Thank you for keeping your promise. Thank you for sending us the spirit of Jesus to live inside of us, to work inside of us, to confirm that we are your children. But I have to confess to you that I don't always allow the Spirit to work as I should. I, I grieve Him, I quench Him, and for that I am sorry. And my prayer for myself and for the people that are under the hearing of my words, my prayer is that in Your great grace and Your great mercy, You would allow Your Spirit one more time and again and again to testify, even this morning, right now, to testify to our spirits that we are your children, that we are loved by you. And that if some of us are trying to turn to cheap substitutes to remind us that they they won't fulfill, they won't give us what we're looking for, only God can do that. May your spirit work powerfully in our lives today and tomorrow when we have to get up and go to work. I pray that you would help us every day to wake up and realize this precious gift we've been giving. Not just Jesus beside of us, but Jesus inside of us. God, give us this gift. And, of course, I ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.